For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Despite a ruling by the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, women in Oklahoma are not allowed to go topless, according to Attorney General Mike Hunter, who made the announcement Monday, saying there are still state and local laws against nudity. Ryan, do you think someone could challenge Oklahoma's laws like they did in Fort Collins, Colorado? Oh, I think they could challenge them. I think they'd win. I think the attorney general is just flat wrong on this. I mean, his his idea that because there are other circuits that have ruled uh, in favor of upholding these bans, these discriminatory bans on women going topless, that somehow that that circuit split between the 10th Circuit and other circuits you know, allows Oklahoma to continue to enforce criminal penalties against women for being shirtless in public. And that's just not the way it works. I mean, the, if there is a circuit split, it's the Supreme Court of the United States that resolves that circuit split, not the Oklahoma Attorney General. I mean, frankly, if the Attorney General really wants this precedent out there that you get to just pick and choose which circuit court to follow, I mean, in a lot of instances, I'd like to follow the Ninth Circuit uh, or maybe the Second Circuit, but that's just not the way it works. Oklahoma is part of the Tenth Circuit. That ruling is binding on Oklahoma. And if you look at the Tenth Circuit's ruling in that case, that two-to-one ruling, you know, what they say is that it's, it is, there's no real basis. I mean, if you want to know how ridiculous these laws are, read that opinion because Fort Collins in defending it, I mean, they, the biggest part of their evidence came from a Wikipedia page about the genetic or the anatomical differences between men and women's breast. And I mean, they, they rely on this Wikipedia page and they say, well, we're going to see traffic accidents. And, but really what it is, is that it's about this negative stereotype of depicting women's breast uh, as a sexual, uh, as, as a sex object instead of just a person's part of their body. And if we allow that to be Im- uh, embedded in law and enforced by law, then we're just allowing our government to reinforce these negative stereotypes. Neva. Well, I think uh, Attorney General Hunter made the point that the majority of the cor- courts around the country, regardless of the Tenth Circuit, the majority have upheld traditional public decency and public nudity laws. And, and in 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 respect to uh, Oklahoma, state law still permits municipalities to regulate or ban public nudity or define nudity. And, and, and Oklahoma City and other uh, uh, municipalities have already stepped forward and said, look, uh, we have public uh, indecency ordinances that ban women from going topless in public, and we are going to, uh, we are going to enforce that. So, uh, you know, again, this is one of these issues that's cropped up that now is going to go through probably a long series of litigation uh, as we We've already seen with this Colorado case in Fort Collins, but you know I think if you uh, if you looked at it uh, by and large across the nation, I think I think there would be very much uh, um, agreement uh, across the board that uh, what has been construed by the courts as uh, upholding traditional public decency and public nudity laws, uh, the public would stand behind. You know, one of the things that the court said, they said, you know, uh, notions like the fear that topless women will endanger children originate from the sex object stereotype of women's breast. And as we've explained, that stereotype does not stand up to scrutiny. And then they go on to say that one of the most important purposes of the Equal Protection Clause is to ensure that public sensibilities grounded in prejudiced and unexamined stereotypes do not become enshrined as part of the official policy of the government. I think that if, I don't think it would be long litigation at all. I mean, I think that if somebody uh, were cited on this, they would have a strong defense, it would get kicked out, and then the the uh, 
the municipal government that did that would expose itself. You see what I did? They 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 would they would expose themselves to uh, to civil liability. Well, and and then and the it cost opens, of defending and it opens an up the door. Position. Then you know if we're if we're talking that, then where does it go beyond topless? You know the topless issue with women. You know uh, just the uh, the decency factor of where is the limit? You know where are the limits going to be with regard to public decency and what the public will be uh, uh, having to be exposed to, as you say, <laughs> uh, in in the, in in public, and I think this is a big issue that uh, you know that seems like uh, you know people are trying to marginalize or minimize, but it really has a much larger context if you take it to the to the full extreme where it might go if we start down this road. In the Tenth Circuit opinion, I, they make a distinction between breast and genitalia. I mean, what they're saying is that Fort Collins and then any other municipality that wants to ban this, they're conflating breast with genitalia. And so, I mean, I do think that you could and say... And so the court now is making these... They're making these arbitrary distinctions. I, I, mean, well, I don't, you know, I don't so, think that there's an arbitrary distinction between breast and genitalia. Well, I mean, that's going to be one of those points that's going to, I think, be opened up to be argued. And, you know, where do you draw the line when you start down this road? At the waist. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Attorney General Mike Hunter is fighting with two at-home rape kit companies, sending them cease and desist orders. Hunter claims the kits are inadmissible in courts, but the businesses say it can be admitted. They say they hope to work with the state, but feel officials are misleading the public. Neva, what do you think of this news? Well, I think I think it is something where, I mean, what we see now is with this marketing, it really is a question of the marketing, I think. And we see these two companies uh, that have been called into question have pulled back. Uh, they, they say that they're, uh, that these items are currently unavailable if you if you go online. Uh, they are uh, working with their attorneys to try to work through this process and determine whether or not they they really do have any uh, liability on, on the matter. But the bigger question is if if this if uh, these kits do not have the capacity to be used in a court of law, if they if if then are we giving false hope or are we sending the, these bad signals to these victims uh, who already have all of the long uh, you know the long-term consequences of what they're what they're dealing with and I think that's the bigger issue as opposed to just the the marketing side or the consumer side or just the commercial side that we're seeing with these two companies trying to get these in the marketplace and I think that's the main question can these be used in court and well and I don't think that they can I mean or they I mean you could you could admit you know, or try anything to admit you just want, about but, anything that you want. Right. But chain of custody, whenever you're talking about evidence that, in, that contains material that's that's tested and it has to be scientifically proven by experts, I mean, there's a, there's a chain of custody issue there that I think the attorney general is just right on about. And if we're telling women or men that are survivors of sexual assault that uh, you know, that they've already undergone this trauma. One of the ways that you heal that trauma is to seek justice. Or if you, I mean, if they want, that's, that's one of the ways to seek uh, relief for that trauma is to seek some justice for the wrong that's been perpetrated against them. Then we want to make sure that when they do go to court, uh, that when prosecutors and police officers are on the stand and they're talking about what's happened here, that they've got evidence that's admissible, that's strong, and that can hold people accountable. And to give, as Neva said, to give folks false hope or to make them feel like this at-home kit is an alternative to going to seek medical treatment. Now, the availability and the accessibility of medical treatment and the stigma surrounding sexual assault mm-hmm. that still exist in many corners of our state, uh, you know, those are things that are real barriers to, to women and men that are survivors of sexual assault being able to uh, have access to the kind of information and treatment and justice that they deserve. But these kits, I don't think, solve that. And I think that they do create a sense that 
uh, they'll be able to do this. And then if they want to take that into court and hold somebody accountable, when in fact, it probably makes it more likely uh, that somebody that did perpetrate a sexual assault is able to get off uh, from and, and not be held accountable I think in court. It, I think Attorney General Hunter was exactly right. It is a non-solution, and yeah. I think that's how it has to be looked at. And it should be noted that you know Oklahoma law provides that victims of sexual assault can receive medical exams at no cost. So uh, the victims have, they don't have to report it to uh, law enforcement in order to have that exam done. But there there are measures out there already in place. And I think this is an education process that we have to get better and better at so that these victims uh, uh, know what uh, what is available to them to be able to access and take advantage of. And certainly seeing all these at-home risk rape kits uh, probably also stemmed from the fact that there was such a backlog of rape kits in Oklahoma. Maybe something needs to be more done about that as well. Well, yeah, 7,000 of them. I mean, which, you know, lawmakers had to write legislation and do some things to directly directly say, look, you're only going to uh, you're only going to have uh, 20 days to, you know, to to get these submitted. Uh, And even even with the kids saying that they have to be kept now at least 50 years or the statute of limitations, whichever is uh, longer. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they've done some things to to address what was a very extreme uh, situation that was brought to light just you know just within the past few years yeah. but I think yeah, I think with respect to just individuals and what their expectation is um, on this particular instance I think that the cease and desist and the attorney general being very aggressive on this matter is good some state lawmakers are coming out in support of a California law allowing college athletes to get endorsements like the pros the support appears to be coming from both sides of the aisle. Ryan, could this get passed in a state known for its college football? Absolutely, it could. And I think that we're going to see laws like this uh, being proposed across the country in the wake of California's adoption of a law that allows college athletes to get the money that they're due whenever their likeness and their name uh, is being used for profit by a college or by NCAA uh, or to be able to go out and market themselves. I mean, what we're t- you know, there's this idea that you know they're getting some bargain uh, out of uh, you know, getting a scholarship. And I mean, to an extent, yeah, that, that is a bargain. But if you look at the cost, in particular for, you know, look at the football players, uh, you know, the, the, the exploitation of their bodies and their, their livelihoods and their future lives, and most of them don't go on to the NFL to make millions of dollars. And so the ability to get compensated for what they're doing in college, it just makes sense to me. And uh, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that we're seeing folks from both sides of the aisle, especially people that have experience in college athletics, you know, realizing that, you know, this is a billion dollar industry. I mean, I saw somebody, one of the legislators saying, well, college athletics is sacred. You know, it may seem sacred to you, but at the end of the day, it's a business. It's a billion dollar business that the everybody from the networks to NCAA to the universities all profit from, and the very people that drive those profits are the ones not getting compensated. And these laws change that. Neva. Well, it's interesting. You say it's it's actually a fourteen billion dollar mm-hmm. industry yeah, last yeah. year uh, with uh, with college uh, with college sports. So it is something. And I think what what the setup here in California is they wanted to give a wake up call and force the NCAA to the table and to really get serious about the conversation, which heretofore has kind of been given lip service. And so you had. Um, uh, 
Governor Newsom in California sign a, a bill that was passed unanimously, which that alone kind of gives pause when you step yeah. back and think, how did this happen? <laughs> and and it was just filed by this uh, uh, California state senator from Berkeley in February. It sailed through. And I think as, as uh, many of the reports now are starting to come out, really what, what the uh, feeling was, and even Governor Newsom, when he went on LeBron James uh, HBO television show to sign it and kind of make his point because he was a college athlete, a baseball player. Uh, he said, look, I mean, this is something in essence that it's, it's game on now time for the NCAA to say really what you want to do. The thing that's that's being kind of, uh, I think, uh, under, not so much underscored in this conversation about the endorsements is the fact that it does open the door for college athletes to hire agents. And I think that's a, that's a much different issue because, uh, as we all know, I mean, the, the issue with agents, whether it's, uh, you know, those that are, you know, trying to, you know, latch onto these athletes coming out of college or not going to college or whatever the case may be, uh, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of issues there with, the, just the exploitation factor. I mean, we can say, well, you know, the kid is, uh, you know, not getting as much as as uh, he or she he or she should as a college athlete, other than a, a college education uh, being afforded to them. But I think there's a lot more to this this whole equation, a lot bigger conversation. I think states would be wise not to just legislatures to just you know kind of take this legislation and everybody rubber stamp it and you know put it into place, but actually get everyone to the table and make a much more thoughtful consideration of what needs to be done. Do you think we could see legislation next year? Oh, I think that it's it's almost a certain that we'll see legislation, whether it's uh, identical to what came out of California or not. I mean, that remains to be seen. But uh, I think that, you know, the uh, if you look at the, the bipartisan support that this already has in Oklahoma, uh, it seems to me there's very few things that whenever the idea comes to the to the forefront that you have both sides immediately coming out and saying, we want to do something about this. So I'd be surprised if we don't see legislation this next session. But it's important to note that in California, the legislature itself left open the possibility that California could rework its approach, you know, to this NCAA uh, issue and their plans once they got to the table. So it's not a, you know, it's not one of these forced deals where it's our way or the highway and we're not going to have any further conversation. And I think that's the upshot from all of this that we're seeing this week with the bill being signed on Monday. And before we even get to lawmakers, I mean, we haven't really heard much from uh, the the colleges, OU and OU OSU especially, how they might feel about doing something like this because they're going to have a big say in what co- what. Well, they've had a big say already. I mean, it's uh, colleges and universities, NCAA, you know, it's the institutional actors that have been the beneficiaries of free labor. Uh, I mean, they've been able to take these young men and women who are exceptionally talented and who've put their entire lives into these sports. Some of them will never go pro. I mean, there's not really a, a pro option for them at the end of the table, and they get a scholarship out of it. But the colleges are making, I mean, that's, and that's great. And, and some, fe- some folks will say, I do it for the sport. But the colleges in the meantime, as Neva said, are making, you know, tens of billions of dollars but, out of this. But let's remember that the colleges also, within the framework of their own budgets, I mean, a college that's a big football school or a big basketball school, those major sports are funding all of the minor sports. I mean, you, you're not going to have college athletes at the level of being able to get full scholarships and be on the soccer team and the rugby team and the tennis team and 
the golf team and the gymnastics team and on down the line if you don't have the ability for these schools to be able to to have highly profitable uh, big programs. I mean, that's the key. And so, you know, if you're just going to wash out the the prospects that uh, no longer students have the uh, aspiration that they can go to college on a scholarship and also do something they love and play sport at the same time, that may be, you know, that may be where it goes. But there's, again, those are the things that have to be looked at beyond just this notion that, you know, they've been exploited and that we need to give them every opportunity for all of these endorsements because the reality is it's not going to, uh, uh, it, it's just not going to work that way, I think, when all is said and done. But, you know, the money is not going to come out of the university's pocket necessarily. I mean, if you're if you're a gymnast and you've got your, your, your suit that you're wearing on your floor routine, if it's got the Nike swoosh on it, and Nike wants to, and, and Nike wants to make sure that you're wearing a Nike uniform, or maybe you've got some sort of uh, you know piece of equipment, and they want it to be seen on TV, even if it's you know not in the middle of you know a Saturday big football event, if it's just a you know a, a brief flash on TV, you know those companies think that that's worth money, and if they want to say, listen, this is something that we want to you know, compensate you for, the student should be able to say, sure, I'll take that, without having to worry about being disqualified from playing the sport that they dearly love. Governor Stitt wants solutions on keeping cell phones out of the hands of prisoners. Officials believe an organized brawl resulting in the shutdown of state prisons was coordinated by gang members using mobile devices. Neva, the governor even suggests jamming the devices. Would this work? I don't know. And I think the, the bigger question is that this is not a new problem. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, as we talked about last week, I mean, uh, uh, former corrections director Joe Albaugh back in May was saying that the cornerstone of communications that these gangs were running, these criminal enterprises inside the, the prisons were, were these cell phones. And, you know, when, and I think the public would be just astounded when they see a statistic like 48,500 legal cell phones have been taken out of our prisons here in Oklahoma in recent years. I mean, the yes, it is an absolute incredible problem, but we've known it's a problem. Mm-hmm. So instead of just saying, okay, let's think about, uh, you know, let's all come together and I'm going to f- have an executive order telling, telling us, let's figure out the, you know, the solution. Let's figure out the solution. I mean, other states have to, uh, and corrections uh, systems across the country have dealt with this very same problem or dealing with the problem. So I think this is there's an urgency to it, and let's quit talking about it and let's find some answers. Ryan, yeah, Scott Crow, the interim director of the Department of Corrections, he said that contraband cell phones are our number one security threat. He's just wrong. I mean, he's wrong on that front. I mean, contraband cell phones are a security threat, but the number one security threat in Oklahoma's prisons are the number of people that are in Oklahoma's prisons. We have a mass incarceration crisis. We have way too many people in these prisons. Uh, the riots uh, and and the 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 violence that we saw over the last couple of weeks in Oklahoma's prisons, it's really a miracle that it hasn't happened already. I mean, the, the cell phones are a means uh, to, to, uh, to bring about, uh, violence like that. And, and, you know, coordinated violence, uh, if that uh, ultimately turns out to be the case of actually what happened, uh, after there's an investigation, they, but at the end of the day, it's the number of folks that are in these facilities and we, we are over capacity and we're understaffed. So 
both the, the inmates in these prisons and the correctional officers that are in these prisons uh, are in danger uh, as a result of our mass incarceration crisis. That's the number one security threat in our prisons. And certainly if there are fewer people in the prisons, it would have more eyeballs on the people that are in. Maybe so, community. but when you have 100 gangs already identified operating in, in prisons in Oklahoma, when you have uh, just this past February, when you had the feds come in and have 18 members of the Universal uh, Aryan Brotherhood, this white supremacist, the prison gang that they charge with racketeering enterprises and drug conspiracy and all of these things in prison. I mean, you have to address those. So just curbing the the number of folks being incarcerated doesn't address the the systemic problems inside the prisons that that give us pause for concern safety issues with the the corrections uh, officers and folks that are having to uh, having to be in those prisons as well as uh, other prisoners. I mean, so it's a much bigger question. And I think it's I think this one in particular we've identified for quite some time. Now it's now it's time to come up with some real answers and solutions. The governor's task force on criminal justice holds its first public meeting. The group has come under fire for a lack of transparency. Ryan, how do you feel about the meeting getting open to the public? Well, it should have been open from the outset. I mean, it's kind of surprising that it wasn't. And, you know, I, I think that what we saw out of this meeting was you know, some you know, very powerful testimony from individuals that have been impacted by Oklahoma's criminal justice system and the trauma that Oklahoma's criminal justice system creates and the trauma that it does not resolve uh, for survivors and victims of crime in the state of Oklahoma. But I'll t- I'm, I am disappointed that we're at this point where we have, for years now, uh, studied this issue uh, uh, ad nauseum. And we, we know what the drivers of mass incarceration are in the state of Oklahoma. We know what leverage we can pull, these what policy leverage we can pull in the state of Oklahoma to reduce incarceration and to increase public safety in the state of Oklahoma. And so, you know, these these task force, I mean, they're good to, I mean, it seems like they just want to personalize this issue. And that, that may be helpful politically down the road. But it's difficult to see how out of this task force, uh, especially knowing what we otherwise know, that they're going to come up with any recommendations that are new or novel for the governor to propose to the legislature. Because we already know what we need to do in the state of Oklahoma uh, at the top level. I mean, if we want to you know, start planning 20 years from now or 10 years from now, but we've got 10 years worth of policy proposals that we could do in the 2020 legislative session that would dramatically reduce incarceration rates in the state of Oklahoma and improve public safety for everyone. Neva. Well, I think, you know, you've had this task force. Uh, it came together. Then it started meeting privately in these smaller six uh, uh, smaller subcommittees and kind of doing whatever work's been going on there as they've come back this week to this uh, full meeting basically what you had is a lot of specialists a lot of people that are uh, in their own right professionals uh, involved uh, in in this in this arena and they were really just given an opportunity to listen and to learn I think that's important but I agree with Ryan at the end of all of this we have to have some action and you know some of the things that clearly keep coming through in the, in the conversations and the, and the uh, uh, the folks that are coming through and, and telling their stories to, to this task force and others you know they say it gets down to simple things like mentoring like having just support out there and how you have these wraparound services for these folks so that they can be successful. So some of it is so simple at its core that we're complicating it by not finding ways just to uh, engage people and do what we know has been proven successful to the very people that can demonstrate it by coming in and telling their story. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.